about half past, so um, perhaps we could start this lecture. Thank you very much for coming. This is the third in this short series that we've got through the festival on the subject of enlightenment and popular culture, particularly with reference to theatre. We've already had two uh, first looked at the work of Handel in Exploring. Last week we looked at the theatre of domestic life, if you like. And today we're going to look at aspects of street theatre. Um, and my colleague from History and Classics in Heritage uh, University, Dr. Adam Fox, is going to talk to this subject. So, Adam. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stana. Uh, thank you all very much for, for coming. It's a, a pleasure to be here in, in these splendid circumstances. The period of the Enlightenment witnessed an enormous growth in British theatre. During the middle decades of the 17th century, the great London playhouses had been closed and local ordinances had forbidden the performances of travelling players throughout the provinces. Yet, by 1820, there were literally hundreds of metropolitan venues for staging dramatic performances and almost every market town throughout Britain had a theatre of some sort. On the eve of Victoria's reign, Britain could boast the greatest number of plays staged annually per head of population than any country in the world. It was in this period that the theatre, as a permanent feature of the urban landscape, was first established across the country. In this period, that provincial repertory companies were first founded. And in this period, that theatre-going became the habitual practice of Britons across the country. Given the flourishing and formative nature of this period, it's somewhat surprising that it remains a relatively neglected one in the history of British theatre. Between the mountain of scholarship on the Shakespearean stage and the heavy concentration on the melodrama, light opera and music hall of the 19th century, there remains something of a lacuna. This may partly be explained by the fact that this era seems rather prosaic when compared to the achievements of those either side perhaps because relatively little work continues to be performed from this day, and perhaps because the records of provincial theatre in particular are very poor for the Georgian era. With respect to the theme running through this series of lectures, that of enlightenment and popular culture, the history of the theatre provides an invaluable point of entry, however. Debate currently exists among historians over the extent to which the ideas, values and aspirations of enlightened thought and culture can be said to have reached a mass audience. Did the Enlightenment, as we understand it, make any difference to the attitudes and sensibilities of the mass of the population up and down the country? In order to answer that question, we must first ask what were the means by which the new thinking and fashionable opinions might be communicated to a semi-literate audience in the towns and villages? One crucial vehicle for cultural transmission in this period, of course, was the printed word. Much work has been done in recent years on the newspapers, periodicals, pamphlets and books that were being printed and distributed in ever greater numbers over the long 18th century. We now know a good deal about the nature of these various literary forms, together with the size and scale of their production. Research into reading, purchasing power and book sales has even told us something about their consumption. The other great medium for the transmission of intellectual capital in this period, however, was the theatre. Together with reading matter, this was the other major mass communicator of the time, the only other mode that the 18th century could offer for disseminating knowledge or opinion in standardised form over the nation as a whole. 
Drama was the great point of contact between polite and popular culture, centre and periphery. In saying something briefly about the condition of British theatre in the 18th century, I want to make some scant remarks about the nature of theatre as a broker of enlightened ideas, a means through which the avant-garde notions of the day could penetrate down through the ranks and reaches of society. In the century or so after the restoration of 1660, something like the present organisation and structure of British theatre emerged. The major concentration of activity and talent remained in London, where established theatres with permanent professional companies were based. For certain months of the year, these companies would also tour the provinces, mostly in the southeast of England. In addition, the 18th century witnessed a proliferation of theatres across the country that provided a home for permanent repertory companies and a venue for troops of genuinely peripatetic players. In terms of quality, the hierarchy of metropolitan, provincial and itinerant was clearly evident. In London, the great theatres comprised the Theatre Royal, Drury Lane, designed by Sir Christopher Wren in 1674 and remodelled by Robert Adam in 1775. The King's Theatre Haymarket, designed by Sir John Vanborough in 1705, and the Covent Garden and Goodman Fields Theatres, both opened in 1732. Between them, these four venues provided the hub of British theatre. It was here that the best new plays were first performed, the most famous actors resided, and the richest clientele were entertained. By the 1720s, there had emerged town companies in Bath, Norwich and York. A new playhouse was opened in Bath in 1705, a bigger and better one built in 1750 and upgraded in 1774. In Norwich, the company was based at the White Swan, to which, from 1739, a series of improvements were made. Here, too, a new venue was constructed in 1758. In York, plays had been put on at the Merchant Tailors Hall in the Market Square until a new theatre was constructed in Minster Yard in 1734. By mid-century, town companies were being established in other major urban centres. Birmingham, 1752, Plymouth, 1758, Salisbury, 1765. Meanwhile, more and more towns raised money by public subscription to build small theatres that could accommodate London companies or bands of travelling players. In Ipswich, for example, the Tackett Street Theatre was built in 1736, and it was here in June 1741 that the great David Garrick made his first stage performance. But it was the third quarter of the 18th century which saw British theatre come of age as an established and respected feature of the provincial landscape. In large towns and cities up and down the land, existing theatres were elevated and new ones built by dint of patents from the Crown. The main theatres of Bath and Norwich were upgraded to Theatres Royal in 1768. New ones were built at York and Hull in 1769 and also in Edinburgh at the north end of North Bridge. Others followed in Liverpool, 1771, Manchester, 1778 and Bristol in 1779. The size of these venues could be considerable. Drury Lane seated a staggering 3,611 by the end of the period, while the Theatre Royals in Norwich and Bath held over 1,000. In 1788, an Act of Parliament gave JPs the power to licence players for 60 days at a time, and this gave a further stimulus to theatre building in market towns. So Samuel Butler opened half a dozen venues on his Yorkshire circuit between 1788 and 1805. 
By the outbreak of the French Revolution, then, much of the infrastructure of British theatre, as we currently recognise it, was firmly in place. The path to the stabilisation of this structure was far from smooth, however. The advance of British theatre during the Age of Enlightenment was blighted by two major impediments. The first was government censorship. The lapse of the Licensing Act had ended pre-publication regulation of the press in Britain in 1695, but in practice, authors and publishers still remained vulnerable to the laws of libel and sedition if their works were deemed to reflect adversely on the social and political elite. Those in office were acutely aware of the subversive and scurrilous potential of the stage in its capacity to criticise public figures and political regimes. As a consequence, there were repeated attempts by both national governments and local authorities to close down existing theatres, deny licences to new premises and ban travelling companies. In the face of severe scrutiny from above, the theatre, however, stuck fast to its long-established tradition of political and satirical comment. In January 1716, for example, a troop of unlicensed players visiting Norwich performed for the patrons at the King's Arms the farce The Earl of Mar Mard, which had been printed the previous year in the wake of the Jacobite Rising. The Norwich Gazette reported the divided political sympathies in the audience that night, among whom the play precipitated a full-scale riot. When the part of proclaiming the pretender as king was acted on the stage and the players gave a formal huzzah at it, the people also in the galleries gave a great shout, whereupon Captain Hall and some other gentlemen well affected to King George began to hiss at them, at which they not only shouted louder but clapped their hands and stamped their feet to that degree that the whole house rang again. Upon that, the gentlemen drew their swords and cried out, Down with the rebels, down with them, damn them and mar them, which set the ladies a-shrieking and put the house in disorder. On Tuesday night, the farce was played again, and the audience in the galleries not only shouted as they did before, but had the imprudence to hiss at the name of his most sacred majesty, King George. Good Lord, what age we live in. It was anxiety over topical and subversive material of this sort, then, that prompted the most severe attack on the theatre in this or indeed in any period. In 1737, Sir Robert Walpole passed the Playhouse Act that required all dramatic productions henceforth to be approved by the Lord Chamberlain. In support of this measure, Walpole could cite the as-yet-unacted Festival of the Golden Rump, which assaulted the King and Queen in obscene and derisive terms. He might also have pointed to Benjamin Griffin's popular farce, Whig and Tory, first performed in 1723, and ridiculing the personalities and policies of some of the principal politicians of the day. Five years later, the most famous of works, John Gay's Beggar's Opera, which poked fun at London's polite society, compared Walpole's cabinet to a gang of criminals, and made the Prime Minister out himself to be the most successful crook, a uh, most successful crook as the ballad opera's hero, Macheath, was the last straw. Not surprisingly, Gay's sequel of the following year, Polly, was suppressed by Walpole and didn't see, see the stage until 1777. Cock Robin took this kind of action precisely because he appreciated the p subversive potential of the stage. The Beggar's Opera was phenomenally successful, being performed 62 times for up to 40,000 people in its first season alone, and its jokes and characters entered the language of popular politics. When in 1763 the aristocratic libertine the Earl of Sandwich 
grassed up his former boozing companion John Wilkes, he was soon dubbed Jemmy Twitcher after the thief who betrays McKeith, and the tag was to remain with him. The second great opponent of the theatre, scarcely less in this period than in the 1640s and 50s, was Puritanism. Since the 16th century at least, large sections of the clergy had invaded against the stage, and from the 1690s, the Societies for the Reformation of Manners had mounted sustained campaigns to suppress it. Moralists, educationalists and preachers joined a chorus of commercial interest that saw plays and playhouses as the corrupter of youth, the dissipator of time and money, and the midwife of debauchery. Almost all towns and cities were locked in an ideological warfare over this issue with varying consequences. But we might focus here on the experience of Edinburgh, where the alliance of stern Presbyterian ministry and magistracy was particularly potent. We know that there was a playhouse operating in the Canongate in 1669, but its fortunes were pretty short-lived. Visiting players were periodically licensed by the town council throughout the late 17th and early 18th centuries, but dramatic performances in the city remained occasional and carefully monitored. In 1715, the council was complaining against a group of comedians whose performance they had mistakenly sanctioned, which had caused great offence to many by trespassing upon morality and those rules of modesty and chastity. When in 1727 the comic actor Anthony Aston rented the Skinner's Hall for 15 shillings a week to perform a famous play, Love for Love, the magistrates went into action again, banning the performance and provoking the aristocratic supporters of Aston's company to weigh into a heated debate over theatre licensing. On this occasion again, the authorities of church and state won the day, but the signs of a changing mood were already evident. During the reign of George II, a new climate was beginning to emerge among many sections of the upper and middle ranks of British society that embraced the spirit and the style of the intellectual fashions in London and on the continent of Europe. This new atmosphere of enlightened thought and sensibility was in favour of the free exchange of ideas, the development of novel media for their transmission, and the exploration of radical and heterodox points of view. Much of it was avowedly anti-clerical, regarding the clergy as the personification of obscurantism and the bulwark of progress. In 1737, Alan Ramsey, bookseller, cultural broker and self-appointed spokesman of the New Order in Edinburgh, had set up a playhouse in the city, only to find it quickly closed down under Walpole's new Playhouse Act. Two years later, a bill was before the Westminster Parliament for the legalisation of playhouses, and Ramsey wrote to his MP, Patrick Lindsay, referring bitterly to the lobby in the city against it, those that desire your assistance towards the impoverishing and stupefying the good town by getting everything that tends towards politeness and good humour banished, that anti-Christian priestcraft, gloomy enthusiasm and contention may prevail. He blamed Robert Stewart principal of Edinburgh University, this shadow of a university, as he called it, of working in holy alliance with the Dean of Guild's office in the city to prevent licensing. Opponents railed against Ramsay, accusing him of all the villainous and uh, obtaining all the villainous and profane and obscene playbooks from London and selling them for an easy price to young boys, servant women of the better sort and gentlemen, with the result that vice and obscenity are dreadfully propagated. 
the town council organised a petition against the bill, arguing that playhouses would occasion an expense such as the small extent and wealth and trade of this city cannot well afford, and the manners of youth will be in great danger of being corrupted, of whom there are great numbers residing in this city as being the seat of a university and the place of chiefly regarded for education in this kingdom. In this, they were supported by Principal Stuart, the elders of the Kirk, and many of the masters, merchants, and tradesmen of the city. On the other side of the debate were the Edinburgh intelligentsia, members of the legal community, and a number of the gentry and aristocracy who frequented Edinburgh as a social centre. Typical of this camp was Sir John Clark of Pennycook, lawyer and antiquary, virtuoso and progressive, patron of the arts and arbiter of taste. He wrote to Patrick Lindsay too, I assure you it will displease nobody but ministers, who by their trade must be displeased, or some antiquated folks who can best be pleased with nothing of this kind. The narrow enthusiastical spirit which governed multitudes in Edinburgh must be enlarged by some contrivance of this kind. And I have been very sensible of the way our young ministers preach better in tone and style since the playhouse was first encouraged in Edinburgh. Clark's argument was that plays would expand mental horizons, encourage good taste, and improve social style within the city. The bill was defeated, and Edinburgh would have to wait another generation before the idea of regular theatre was grudgingly accepted by city fathers, and what were described as the bulk of burghers and constant residences. But the players and patrons continued to fight their corner. In November 1741, some of the last recorded minutes of the Society for the Reformation of Manners in Edinburgh noted with regret that stage plays have begun again in this city and are very frequent. In some plays, the actors thereof take occasion in the most impious manner to ridicule true and sincere religion by mocking the printed, preached word. The following year, the, Edinburgh, the university authorities were complaining of the proliferation of unlicensed plays, licentious and dissolute, of which there are so many in the English language designed to corrupt students and excite the vicious relish of the multitude. Looking back from the perspective of the 1770s, Adam Smith noted how the clergy and zealous magistracy had once regarded the stage with peculiar abhorrence because it had exposed their artifices to public ridicule and sometimes even public execration. He recognised how powerful an agent the theatre was for weakening the power of priestcraft and dissipating that melancholy and gloomy humour which is almost always the nurse of popular superstition and enthusiasm. The stage was, he thought, a significant medium for exchanging ideas and changing sensibilities, for inculcating new fashions. It was a vehicle of enlightenment, not necessarily in the specific sense of proffering any particular sophisticated notions or philosophical principles, but in the more general way of helping people to throw off the shackles of authority, question received doctrine, and liberate themselves from a blind faith in tradition. Despite the ongoing struggle against political censorship and religious conservatism, however, the theatre emerged in the last quarter of the 18th century as a major agent of communication, entertainment and even enlightenment in Britain. It had the capacity to reach a mass audience, to convey work of a political, topical and fashionable nature and to form a major part of the nation's cultural repertoire. To some extent, however, the great greater acceptance of the stage by the reign of George III 
was purchased at the expense of fragmenting the audience and differentiating the marketplace for theatrical entertainment. One consequence of the building and rebuilding of larger and finer theatres over the century was that they became ever more expensive. Renovation or construction was funded by public subscription and by loans secured against future ticket sales. And this capitalisation of the business inevitably forced up prices. It also increased the need to appeal to the tastes and sensibilities of a wealthy and genteel audience. The new theatre built in York in 1734 had charged three shillings per performance for boxes, two shillings for the pit and one shilling for the middle gallery. Alternatively, a subscription could be purchased for the whole season of 13 weeks, a run of 26 plays at two a week, at a cost of a guinea and a half for boxes, one guinea for the pit and half for the middle gallery. When David Garrick took over the management of Drury Lane in 1747, tickets there in London cost five shillings in the boxes, three shillings in the pit, two shillings in the first gallery and one in the upper. At a time when the wages of craftsmen in the capital were about two shillings a day and those of labourers one shilling and fourpence, theatre of this sort was effectively already beyond the reach of most artisanal ranks. The cheapest seats were half a day's earnings. Moreover, the cost of the best theatres was increasing over the course of the century. Drury Lane was opulently remodelled by Adam in 1775, making it one of the finest public spaces in London. Elsewhere around the country, the other theatre royals that had been newly built or lavishly upgraded necessarily elevated the price and prestige of attendance. Ticket charges went up as theatre managers needed to recoup their investments, and the social cachet of such fine premises made them places to be seen. By the 1780s, a box at Drury Lane cost seven shillings a performance, and one at the Theatre Royal in Edinburgh or York between four and five. Even the galleries could consume the entire daily earnings of a skilled worker. The aristocracy and gentry sent their servants in advance to secure places in the boxes, and many subscribed to one for a season, securing, in effect, a permanently reserved place. There'd long been a sense, of course, in which being seen and recognised at the theatre in the best seats on the right performances had been a part of fashionable living, but in the later 18th century, it reached new heights. Together with tea and bridge at the assembly rooms, promenading in exclusive gardens, recitals at the concert hall, attendance at theatre to see and be seen was woven into the fabric of polite society. In 1790, Tate Wilkinson, manager of the Theatre Royal in York over the previous generation, recorded in his memoirs the way in which certain days in different cities had become established as appropriate for people of quality and taste, and it was only upon those that they attended regardless of the performance. For people of fashion, the theatre was not so much about playgoing, but about social interaction and display. A lady will go to the theatre in Edinburgh, Bath and York, though to the most indifferent play and as indifferently acted on the Saturday because it is the Saturday, yet the best acted comedy shall be offered to the public in either of these three playhouses on any other night and is totally neglected unless it be hinted that somehow this might too be fashionable. In Hull, by contrast, he noted that Saturday was the least fashionable night. Garrick also commented on the way in which the social tone and expectation of the audience varied not only between the different London theatres, but between metropolitan and provincial audiences. 
certain theatres, certain nights, certain performances had their particular social tone, no less than other venues of sociability, places of residence or patterns of consumption. There was, an, over time, an increasing distaste as a result, among the polite and genteel for the kind of bawdy, rollicking and participatory behaviour that since the earliest times had been the norm of the theatre-going public. In the early part of the 18th century, seats on the stage were quite common, making part of the audience almost involved in the action. Although this practice declined, it remained standard for patrons to talk to the players, interrupt the performance and make their feelings clear. Thus, when the actress Mrs Kirby was rendering the character of Anne in Shakespeare's Richard III at the Theatre Royal in York during the 1770s and spoke the line, Oh, when shall I have rest? A local grocer jumped up out of his sheet and shouted, Not till you've paid me the one pound and twopence you owe me, madam. <laughs> A certain Griffiths, playing the eponymous hero in the same work sometime later, uttered the famous line, A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse only to find a local grazier pipe up that he could supply him one at a bargain price. In 1784, the famous Sarah Sissons was on the bill at Jury Lane, at which time she'd been in the press for some scandalous indiscretion. She came on the stage and was about to speak her first lines when, so a diarist relates, she was greeted with such mighty hissing and whistling from all sides <coughs> that she could not make herself heard. Many voices cried out, she ought to apologise on her knees. She ought to justify her conduct. At length, after she'd been kept for some time in a state of confusion, quiet ensued. Then someone urged her again to justify her conduct, whereupon she made a little speech in which she did not altogether deny the affair, but excused her herself as well she could, concluding with these words, After all, if everything were precisely as has been charged against me, I believe every Briton will pardon me when I confess I am but a weak woman. Very well, cried the audience, and the proceedings continued. On many such occasions, participation from the auditorium was more boisterous than this. The uproar of the common people in the theatre before the curtain rises is simply frightful, recorded one German visitor to a London theatre in mid-century. They hurled orange peel towards the stage, both before and after the performance. He wanted to turn round and apprehend the spectacle, but a heap of orange peel striking me with considerable force robbed me of all curiosity. Presumably the origin of the watery ingredients of sallow hue which bespattered his hat is best not inquired after. In 1755, a reward of ten guineas was offered at Covent Garden for the name of the person responsible for the hard piece of cheese of near half a pound weight greatly hurled at a young lady in the pit. In 1776, Lloyd's Evening News reported how a tradesman had staggered into the upper gallery at Drury Lane with a barrel of liquor under his arm. As the evening wore on, he became less and less sensible until at last the barrel slipped over the railing and fell right onto the head of a decorous young lady beneath. Fortunately, the poor victim was sporting one of the enormous hairstyles, then a la mode among ladies of fashion, and the yards of plumage had cushioned an otherwise fatal blow. Full-scale riots at the theatre were by no means uncommon occurrences. During the performance of Henry Bates' The Blackamoor Washed White at Drury Lane in February 1776, a fracas began in the pit, occasioned by the hissing of two inebriated gentlemen. Before long, a full-scale punch-up was underway on the stage, which it took half an hour to break up. 
20 years before the uh, interior of one of the Edinburgh playhouses had been demolished, the movables ransacked and the fixtures destroyed by an angry mob inflamed by something in the performance. It was precisely this mayhem then from which the upper ranks of society were seeking to withdraw by the end of our period. Their taste was increasingly for theatre as decorous entertainment, for the atmosphere of viewing in respectful silence and appreciation with a polite applause, which was to set the pattern for the future. But if polite theatre was gradually becoming more refined, the remaining marketplace for drama continued to be unashamedly crude, raucous and populist. Arguably, the divide between what one might call elite and popular theatre became ever more palpable over the years. If such an observation is valid, however, it suggests a simplistically dichotomous view of what was in reality a highly variegated industry that offered forms of entertainment in many guises, catering for almost all pockets and all tastes. Those at the top of the profession, like David Garrick, looked down upon provincial performers, or still worse, upon beggarly itinerants. I don't know how it is, he wrote to his brother in 1762, but the strollers are a hundred years behind we in town. As we endeavour to bring nature to our art, they keep a strutting, bouncing and mouthing. A, performance, a performer who was good in York, observed another contemporary, was usually indifferent in London. As for the audiences in the small country theatres and lesser city venues, they were no less despised by the arbiters of taste for their lack of judgment and sophistication. As Charlotte Chark, actress at Linnet's Company in Bath, put it in mid-century, the lower sort are foolish enough to be pleased with buffoonery in comedy and bellowing in tragedy, without regard to sense or nature in either. For this Audience, knockabout farce, sentimental gravity, and plenty of music was what went down well. Gay's Beggar's Opera, with the scenes, music, singing and dancing performed as in the theatre in London, remained a favourite. Boulderdized versions of Shakespeare, with new songs added and dances intersposed, were always popular. Macbeth, or Jockey and the Three Witches, with all the witches' music, singing, dancing, and other decorations. Sometimes performers would pep up toiling performances of a Shakespearean tragedy by interposing some scenes from the comedies, or on other occasions they mangled the bard in mere collections of his famous works. Particularly popular were the short afterpieces, newly written and often topical, with which it was common to end full-scale performances. Most of them have not lived to fight another day. Miss in her teens, a lover's resolution, the king and the miller of Mansfield, the honest Yorkshireman, the pleasures of the town. Between 1750 and 1758, for example, the repertoire of the players based at the Swan in Norwich included 12 Shakespearean offerings, 24 restoration comedies, 48 full-length 18th century play, and 56 afterpieces. At the lowest level, performances by troops of travellers took place in inns and inn-yards, in wooden booths temporarily erected on the edge of town, in stables and haylofts, or on the fairgrounds and village greens. The strolling performer George Parker recalled in 1781 one performing, once performing in a stable uh, in which the pigsty, not entirely free from the scent of its old inhabitants, served as his dressing room. Barnes provided the most note obviously adaptable venue for ad hoc performances, vividly evoked in Hogarth's strolling actress dressing in a barn, or in Pine's later country theatre. In such venues, the scenes, scenery, props and costumes were highly makeshift. 
At a time when the theatre royals were developing sophisticated methods of lighting and staging, rustic performances remained in a form which would have been familiar to Elizabethans. The itinerant actor John Bernard remembered his first performance at a country inn in the late 18th century. In one of the rooms, the landlord had suspended a collection of green tatters along its middle for a curtain, erected a pair of paper screens right hand and left for the wings, arranged four candles in front of the said wings to divide the stage from the orchestra, and with all spare benches of the inn had formed boxes. A hoopie suspended from the ceiling as a chandelier, and this denominated by him a theatre. This level of accommodation was on a par with the ephemeral booths thrown up at fairs for the performance of the most accessible and simple forms of professional performance in this period. The great London gatherings, Bartholomew Fair, Southwark and Mayfair, and other events across the country were the venues for the staging of drolls or short plays rendered either by puppeteers or actors. If the majority, if the major plays of the 18th century may be conceived of as akin to the novel or the periodical of the stage, then this material was its broadside ballad and its chapbook. Indeed, many of the titles and topics of these drolls were exactly the stuff of cheap print. Some dealt in chivalric romance and mythical heroes, Robin Hood, Guy, Earl of Warwick, St. George and the Dragon. Others emboldenized forms of English history, Whittington, Lord Mayor of London, Watt Tyler and Jack Storr, Fair Rosamond. Still others with biblical or morality tales, Noah's Flood, Dives and Lazarus, David and Bathsheba. All were breath- breathless romps, full of knockabout comedy and interspersed with topical comment. Many were interrupted by the gags of comedians, the antics of rope dancers or the turns of outlandish performers. In 1699, the journalist Ned Ward visited Bartholomew de Fair and described the scene. The booths were constructed with elevated galleries or balconies around the outside on which costumed performers would indicate the contents of the show within. The jests and antics of harlequins, jack puddings and merry andrews endeavoured to entice people to pay the the mere penny that was the price of entry. One blew his nose over the people who regarded it as a great joke. Then, picking out one of the actors, began a tale of the tub, which he illustrated by abundance of ugly faces and mimical actions, for in that lay the chief of the comedy, with which the gazers seemed most affected. Between these two, the clod-skulled audience were lugged by the ears for an hour, the apes blundering over such a parcel of insignificant nonsense that none but a true English unthinking mob could have laughed. Undeterred, Ward paid to witness a performance of Friar Bacon. When the curtain was raised, it revealed a trunk breeches king in fool's cap and with a feather in it, attended by his cringing nobility and some court jilts. After fustian confabulations, the scene shifted to Friar Bacon, projected by his brazen head. When he'd raved and strutted about a little with his magician's wand and made an oration in praise of the head, the scene changed and shut him up in his study to consult the devil. The comic subplot of Amelia and his idiot son, Ralph, then occupied the forestage. Both actors well became their roles of fool and knave. The next part portrayed the indiscretions of a country justice. These three characters were then jumbled confusedly together with a flying shoulder of mutton, dancing and singing devils, and such like pieces of conjuration by the diabolical Friar Bacon, whose magical pranks the mob were wonderfully pleased and greatly astonished at. In all, the performance lasted three quarters of an hour and was concluded with an announcement that the whole thing would begin again in 30 minutes. 
outside the fortnight duration of most fairs, the repertoire of the booths moved out into the inns and the streets. Many taverns allowed booths to be constructed in in their courtyards or permitted the actors and puppeteers to use their upstairs rooms. There were few better ways to stimulate trade than advertised roles on the premises. Certain inns became renowned venue for such entertainment. In and around London, for example, they included the King's Head in Smithfield or the Mitre in Wapping, the Rose in Turnmill Street or the Red Lion in Hosier Lane, the King Charles Head in Russell Court or the Cider Cellar in Covent Garden. It was on the street, too, in Covent Garden, that one could expect to find the makeshift booths, the entertainers mingling with the crowd of market shoppers, or the occupant of street corner performing before the cap into which passers-by would throw coins. There were rope dancers and conjurers, jugglers and comedians, singers and dancers. The exotic and unusual rub shoulders with the fantastic and titillating. Giant-sized Dutch women... Spanish saraband dancers with castanets, Italian fire-eaters and gypsy knife-throwers, performing dogs, dancing bears and monkeys doing tricks, all vied for attention with the puppet play and the droll. As one poet put it, Here's the whore of Babylon, the devil and the pope, the girl is just a-going on the rope. Here Dives and Lazarus and the world's creation, here's the tall Dutch woman and likes not the mention. Here in the booth with the high Dutch maid, here's the bears that dance for ladies. Tit-a-tat-tat goes the penny trumpet, and Jacob's Hall jumps to it. Some of the street characters of Covent Garden were engraved in the 1680s by local resident and artist Marcellus Laroon. In the mid-18th century, the collector Hans Sloan amassed a selection of their advertising bills, and they were still going strong when Henry Mayhew interviewed them in the 1850s. So we've travelled then from the top to the bottom of British theatre in the Age of Enlightenment, from Drury Lane and the other theatre royals down to the fairground and the street corner. The contrast between these proles provide plenty of evidence to support the notion of a gaping gulf existing between elite and plebeian taste, a great antithesis between the concepts of enlightenment and popular culture. And yet it should be observed that even the lowest forms of penny droll and puppet show could in their way be vehicles for the dissemination of political, topical and novel ideas among the multitude. There was always an element within this repertoire that contained comment on current affairs, offering up biting satire and reheating modish ideas. We should not assume that the guffawing mob were always insensible to them. Moreover, persons of quality were not above a trip to the Booth Theatre or the public house. That visited by Ned Ward at Bartholomew Fair had contained several of the top quality women cracking nuts and looking round for admirers, while many in-yard booths advertised the fact that they had space to park the carriages of the gentry. Amid the diet of age-old subjects and traditional favourites was an element of up-to-date material and dangerous social or political comment, more easily evaded Uh, more easily able to evade censoring eyes, perhaps, in venues such as these. In the knockabout diet of justices with their trousers down, clergymen and their servant maids, of rakish and profligate toffs, there was a sense in which the Enlightenment had done its work. Sir John Clark of Pennycook would have probably been pleased. Thanks very much.
thanks, Adam. Uh, well, we've got about a uh, quarter of an hour for questions, and uh, I'm proud to say we live in tame times, don't we, when you can't get expect a decent riot in a theatre. That's right, yes. How, how boring can you get? Yeah. Um, because this is all being recorded, can I, and because we are inconvenienced by this very large piece of furniture, can I ask you uh, to speak into the microphone when you ask your question, and I will endeavour to run around this room and present it. So, a question, Dr. Fox. <laughs> Dan! I'll yell at please, yes. Dr. Fox, could you catch me a little bit more about the influence of the Elizabethan theatre? I mean, there seems to be the big gulf of the closing of the theatres. You know, presumably during that period, not a lot of new material was being produced. So, what what was the influence of the Elizabethan legacy in, in this period? I'd say pre pretty great, actually. Um, there uh, there still exists a bit of a myth, I think, that Shakespearean Elizabethan drama went out of favour in the 18th century. But in fact, if you look at the lists of what was performed by both travelling companies and established repertory groups. Shakespeare accounts for between 25% uh, and a third of their total output. Um, as some of those renderings I indicated uh, suggest, it, it perhaps always wasn't always the, the bard as the bard uh, had intended it. But nevertheless, Shakespearean themes of one sort or another actually provided a pretty staple part of the diet. Restoration comedy would be the other quarter to a third. Uh, a, a new 18th century works uh, comprise the rest. So, in fact, um, it, 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 it's alive and well in this period. And indeed, experiences in the hands of Garrick in particular, whose Hamlet and Macbeth made those roles famous again in London, something of a revival. Uh, Garrick, of course, organised a, a Shakespearean festival at Stratford in 1769. The, the pub still in Stratford called the Garrick was so named from that time, which acted as the sort of headquarters <laughs> of the of the proceedings. So not only is Shakespeare alive and well, he's actually increasing in popularity in the second half of the, uh, of, of the 18th century. And boulderized forms, Jockey and the Three Witches, brought an element of that down to the, to the, the fairground booth. Well, I, I don't know if you were actually here at the first one, but you probably know about it. I was just wondering whether you felt there was any connection between the three lectures. They seem to have a common thread to me. The, um, the Handel one had his influence in the rather better educated people by the, the, the took to being wearing different types of clothes and things like this to yeah. mark out their uh, ability to absorb ideas and take them from elsewhere. Then in the, uh, the second lecture, it was notable that um, the better educated artisans were involved in the um, doing of uh, cartoons, yes. the drawing of cartoons. <coughs> commenting on social habits of the wealthier people. And now they have the, um, the theatre. Now, I, I was expecting 
Well, this is maybe my mistake. I, I, I thought it was going to be largely about street theatre. <laughs> but um, you say that also the street theatre eventually managed to have ideas filtering through and uh, affecting the people of, you know, the poorer people who had no chance of education, etc. Yes. And I, I felt that this was a, a mark of going through the series yes. because they all seem to have some influence on different classes of people, but in general, quite a large number of people. And uh, that was one of the things I thought was good about it, that uh, the people, even at the bottom, began to get a, a stirrup. It wasn't obviously the first time, but I mean, it became more because of the type of uh, means used, the theatre and things, it became more um, accessible to those who have no money and couldn't afford education yes. and books and things. Yes. So, no, did I you think, think of it? <clears throat> yeah, but that's, that's a very interesting point. I, I suppose that there is a sense in which the, the three lectures have been, as it were, travelling down through society, from the upper reaches, through the, the middle ranks, uh, and down to the bottom. And if there is a connecting theme, it is that, it is that there are interrelationships and reciprocities be between these various le levels. And although I was talking about the lowest level at the end, I wanted to, to try and begin with what was happening, as it were, uh, up above, in order to, to make just that point, that in fact there are relationships between high and low, and that when we talk about movements like the Enlightenment with the capital E, or indeed the, the Renaissance or the Romantic movement, any other of these la labels, they are not just necessarily about uh, high culture and about the, the social and educated elite. Of, of course, it's very often at, at that level that these ideas, these movements, if such they are, begin, and where the, the principal uh, lineaments of them are, are, are formed but um, they in fact move and migrate and adapt in the course of being tested through society, of being disseminated and permeated across nations and down through social classes, and they very rarely are confined to uh, exclusive groups. Indeed, in fact, that, that's what ensures their currency and their longevity, that they are on some level genuinely popular. They define the mood of a nation or a region as a whole. And of course they're uh, appreciated and apprehended in different ways by people of different social or educational levels. What enlightenment might mean to one is not going to mean, will not mean the same to another. But on some level, most people are affected. Few people could have been immune. In a sophisticated and pluralistic, a media-driven society like the 18th century, even the people in the country villages are on some level uh, being influenced by things that affect the nation as a whole. Uh, a, a glib analogy in our TV age would be that everyone watches football, everyone watches game shows. It doesn't mean that we don't live in a highly stratified and atomized society in many ways, but there are elements of common culture to which all people, uh, in which all people partake. Thank you. I enjoyed the lecture. I, I wanted to ask you a question about the issue of dissemination and the relationship between um, uh, polite culture and popular culture, or enlightenment culture and popular culture. 
Uh, I think it's probably safe to say that most Enlightenment thinkers um, really had no intention of having most of their ideas disseminated down to the uh, to the, uh, the the broad base of the social pyramid. Yeah. Uh, they wanted common people to be more educated, but they certainly saw no reason, in fact, saw many reasons why not to have them engage in in political issues, for example, yes. or in issues of social inequality uh, in a way that would be critical or or questioning. This is certainly true of people like David Hume, and, and I think Hume was fairly typical yeah. of, of the period, yeah. and not only in Scotland but in, in other countries as well. Yeah. So uh, this, I think, problematizes a bit the issue of what's happening when we talk about dissemination. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it simply a matter of um, ideas uh, essentially f- filtering down in ways perhaps that their producers had not intended? Or is what's happening instead that as they filter down, they're being um, wrenched, if you mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and uh, inverted perhaps even? Yes. Uh, and I'm wondering whether the kind of literature you're using on uh, the popular theater can give you some sense of the essentially the intellectual process or the cultural process mm-hmm in which that kind of um, reformulation would occur. Yes. I think what, what, what you say there hints really at the way in which the Enlightenment, it seems to me, is increasingly being viewed. Instead of viewing it as a, a, a cluster of canonical ideas that, that may or may not trickle down through society, it is, I think, increasingly being viewed as a process a process of of communication and of social and intellectual interaction. And on that level, this material probably fits in quite well. Many of those enlightened thinkers would have subscribed to the principle of open debate. They sponsored the the organs of communication, be it pamphlets or theatre or the novel or whatever, as a means of stimulating and and encouraging that debate. And they recognised reluctantly that they wouldn't be able to control the cat once they'd let it out of the, the bag. So there's a kind of, I think, reluctant acceptance that if you're going to, to play with uh, fire, you're going to necessarily um, reap some unfortunate consequences. But nevertheless, um, you can't not fight against the obscurantism and the reaction of, of, of the past. There's also, I think, a sense in which they think if you can't beat them, join them. The people out there are already literate. They're already talking and thinking in ways that we might not really appreciate. Let's try and influence the process. The most dangerous are those out with the reach of the media of communication. If we bring them in, then we can influence them, we can indoctrinate them would be too strong a word, but we can try and get some some handle on the process. So there's a reluctant acceptance that this is now the world we're living in and and let's try and get get some handle on it. Of course there are um, reactionary or aesthetic thinkers who would have been scandalised to have uh, bumped into a common man or or woman, but they are probably the majority, and by and large it seems to me the tone in Britain anyway is not like that. I mean, you think about, you know, Dr Johnson and uh, Enlightenment is disseminated among us, mate, among with the newspapers. There's a lot of that sort of comment, isn't there? And um, there is an avowedly then populist element, um, I think, about the Enlightenment, which 
um, certainly in the older historiography, which was about the canonical ideas, um, didn't really d deal with. So I think it is about process, and it's not just trickle-down, I don't think. There's an e element of reciprocity there as people, particularly in politics, respond because they have to respond to what's going on below. I mean, many of these people, as the 40-shilling freeholders undermined in real terms over time, are now their political masters. We need to get these people on side because they're going to be voting us out of the rotten borough. Um, so there's, there's something of that for the pure, in the level of polit political expediency, but also I think on a, on a philosophical level, some of that thinking is, is there too. Yes, um, yes, indeed. You mentioned that uh, somebody set up a, more or less a chain of theatres in Yorkshire. Yes. Some years ago, we stumbled on a small theatre in Richmond, mm. which uh, we understood was, in fact, the Garrison Theatre there. Yes. Was there a general um, movement to uh, set up theatres where there were garrisons, or was it simply a case of some entrepreneur thinking, we've got a captive audience here, this would be a good place to have a theatre? I think there is very much the sense in which garrison towns made ideal venues for, for theatres, not only if you've got a captive audience in, in the military, but also in the... Uh, the females and other uh, family members and hangers-on that, that, that military establishments tended to, tended to attract. There's, there's a little bit, I suppose, of chicken and egg in the sense that military centres tended to be based in, in places that were already quite thriving market towns, so they would probably have been natural vi venues for um, performative institutions in, in any case. But no, certainly a military town was a, an excellent commercial prospect. And, and the theatre in Richmond is, is quite well known, actually. It features in a, in a lot of the, the literature of, of the period. So, um, no. And, and, and the figure, I mean, I uh, finished slightly early because uh, I intended to consume a five minutes or so with the overheads that I wasn't able to show. But one of them is... Uh, R Rowlandson's image of a fair booth, and there are a lot of soldiers in the, in the front of, of that. Uh, soldiers, as anyone who knows 18th century cartoons and prints uh, will be well aware, feature very largely, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're here too. Yeah. so much. I enjoyed that, particularly your historical perspective, and I'd rather like your views on uh, our current entertainment in the city of Edinburgh, whether you think the fringe is orientated towards the plebeian masses or is struggling to retain the intelligentsia, and perhaps whether the official festival is desperately trying to keep the plebeian masses at bay. What is your view on this? That's a very interesting one, isn't it? Yes, yeah. No, I was thinking, as I was talking at the end there about, about Covent Garden, renowned for its street entertainers, but also, of course, for its great theatre of, of 1723, and it's almost the sort of the uh, embodiment of the festival and the fringe there, side by side already in the early, in the early 18th century. In terms of the, the sort of the tail wagging the dog, you could almost say that the, the, the droll mongers and the puppeteers of the 18th century were uh, doing exactly what the fringe is, is doing now, um, upstaging 
the so-called established and highly professionalised and famous theatre, which features in the standard literature of the day, actually where it was at for the majority of the population, both high and low, was in the, in the fairground booth that, that Ned Ward went into. And just as today, we all go to the fringe, regardless of gender, social class, or education, or whatever else. It's a genuinely popular, in every sense of that word, uh, form, um, it probably is more significant than the official festival, which by and large continues to appeal to a certain sort of um, person. Uh, the price of tickets, the, uh, the kind of uh, venues still in which theatre and opera and ballet is performed prohibit, uh, discourage the, the participation of the, the generality. So in that sense, I would say that the fringe probably is more important, if, that's, if one can make that qualitative distinction, than the festival, no la less than the puppeteers of the 18th century are more important in informing the totality of Georgian culture than the sort of stuff that David Garrick, famous as it might be, was actually doing at Dr Drury Lane. We should draw a, a halt, partly because I want to um, offer a little advertisement before we thank Adam properly, just to say that this is the last of the present three um, uh, uh, public lunchtime lectures that we've been holding. But in the coming academic year, again in sets of three, we will have a further series that looks at the theme of enlightenment and popular culture. Um, and it is obviously a contentious issue, and it's an issue that touches on many things that, obviously, as academics, we spend a certain amount of time engaging in, but also has a great deal of popular resonance. Um, just to give you a hint of the highlights to come in the autumn term, um, in November there will be an exhibition here at Edinburgh University of uh, paintings and prints by Henry ba Rayburn, or associated with Henry Rayburn, and we will be having, a, and this will be in November, and we'll be having a lunchtime lecture by Dr. Stephen Lloyd from the Scottish National Portrait Gallery, who will be talking in this room about Sir Henry Rayburn and his patrons. So that's coming on in the autumn. But uh, for today, can we thank uh, Adam Fox very much for a most entertaining lunchtime lecture? Thank you.